Welcome to the Rooted in Change podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Jan, and you're listening to the Rooted in Change podcast. This show features European clean tech champions and their solutions to tackle the climate crisis. Today, I'm joined by Pete, the founder and CEO of Deep Branch. Deep Branch utilizes clean and renewable carbon and energy sources to create ingredients for a more sustainable food system. The first product is called Proton. It's a single cell protein developed for the animal feed industry. Welcome, Pete. Hey, Jan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Well, as with all other guests, the first question is sort of what's your background? What's your story? Yeah, um, I, I'm happy to happy to share my story with you, Jan. Um, I mean, obviously, you and I know each other for, for a while already. Um, so I'll, I'll try and forget that for, for this answer. I, I, I'm Pete. Uh, as you said, I'm, I'm, I'm currently the CEO and, and co-founder of Deep Branch. Um, but uh, originally I'm I'm from the UK you can you can probably hear that with my accent I, I grew up in in Leicestershire so so right in the middle um as as a as a kid I was always very very much interested in in biotechnology um uh sort of as a teenager being fascinated by this idea that you could um essentially harness the power of nature um but then using more modern engineering um principles you could then use nature to to create something um something much more much more powerful um be that you know drugs or um, biofuels or 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 renewable materials you know whatever it might be um and so i enrolled um in in university um and studied biotechnology with enterprise um the university of manchester at that time offered this course which i thought was really interesting because it was um really focused on the commercialization side of, of technology um right so, so not just sort of developing the tech but also rolling it out being able to create a business out of it yeah exactly so it was it was enabling people that wanted to um to understand and, and really cut their teeth on, on on the fundamental principles of of that technology um but then also get an understanding of the broader context of how you can actually get that to work in in, in the real world which you know, now as a founder and CEO, it's uh, yeah, it's much more about the, yeah. the everything that's not the technology than than right. than 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 having um, having a very good idea, right? Um, and so I, I I took that course. Uh, whilst there, I I took a year out and um, worked for a small biotech firm uh, in the Canary Islands, which was which was really eye opening. I got you know really good exposure to to the fact that. Yeah, if you want to have a transformative company, uh, it really helps um, to to sort of have a deep technical understanding. Um, particularly if if the onus is on you as the founder to to have that idea. So I I went back, finished my undergraduate degree, and in, enrolled in a in a PhD. So um, I, I did a, a PhD in in molecular microbiology. So still broadly speaking, biotech. Um, and this was at the University of Nottingham uh, in a research group who were and still are one of the world leaders when it comes to gas fermentation. So gas fermentation is, uh, is uh, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. But for, for people that aren't familiar with, with fermentation, uh, I can maybe use uh, an analogy which would be you know, sort of wine making a traditional form of fermentation to explain what gas fermentation is. So, so when you're making wine, uh, essentially you're you're taking the the carbon and the energy from from sugars that, that are in the grapes. You, then you have yeast that are able to transform um, that that sugar, uh, the carbon and energy from the sugar into 
uh, into a more valuable end product, which is of course wine, um, and they're, they're converting the, the sugars into into alcohol, ethanol. Now, sugar isn't the only feedstock that you can use in a fermentation process; it's by far the most common. Uh, but as my my former colleagues um, found out, discovered at, at the University of Nottingham, uh, it's also possible to to utilize um, single carbon gases, so things like carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide methane from natural gas um, all of these things can be used as a, as a carbon source um, and therefore you can have fermentation uh, without a requirement for for arable land you know you don't need right. sugar to, to to perform fermentation and this kind of really blew my mind um i guess it was what are we talking like 2020 2012 something like that when when i when i first became aware of this space right being exposed to this technology um where most of the applications that people were looking at were indeed uh, fuels at that time. Um, for me, that 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 was really really inspiring. You know, turning turning carbon dioxide uh, or carbon monoxide from industrial processes into into biofuels, giving giving that carbon a second life um, before it enters into the atmosphere. Um, you know, really good companies in this space. Uh, one of which sponsored my PhD. They've now since gone public. Lanzatech. Um, so so really great to. Um, to, to get some exposure there again um, with that sort of commercialization angle, you know, rather than just doing blue sky research in, in a lab far away from the real world, understanding sort of the practical implications of, of the work that you're doing. And I think also sort of the, the realistic applied nature of, um, of, of wanting to commercialize science. It's, uh, you know, the best complicated um, experiments and, and ideas uh, don't always easily translate into readily scalable technology. Right. And I guess that also leads us into where you are today, because then obviously you found Deep Branch. So maybe you can sort of describe what Deep Branch does first, and maybe also based on your story, sort of what led to you founding the companies as one of the co-founders. Yeah. Um, so following my PhD, I, I, I actually left the UK and moved to the Netherlands, where, where I now live. Um, I, I took a job with a, a small biotech company, um, who who were focusing on um something completely different yeah so, sort of working in in broadly in the, in the animal um agriculture technology space ag tech um but it was here in the netherlands where i got sort of a lot of exposure to to the protein problem you know this this concept um that we simply can't produce sufficient volumes of high quality protein in order to meet the the growing demands that, that we have um for for that protein of course, um, if you look at it on a systems level, we're not very efficient with our use of protein. We use a lot of the um, the soy protein that we produce. Most of the soy protein that we produce is, goes into feeding animals, and then of course we we eat the animals as a or the animal products as a um, as a protein source as humans. Um, but you know, seeing as that's very much here to stay, uh, um, you know, it's it's increasing on a per capita basis. Um, and then, of course, with population growth, that means on an absolute basis, it's it's it's, it's growing um, at a faster rate than, than population growth. Owed, of course, mainly due to economic development. Um, people have more money; they they tend to eat more meat. So yeah, being in the Netherlands, that 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 was a hot topic. Um, you know, companies doing insect protein, uh, companies looking at um, sort of co-products, byproducts of of um, of crops and uh and uh, other agricultural co co-products and saying okay can we can we extract the proteins can we use these as a as a protein source um yeah all the good work that's been done in the, in the plant plant-based protein space in terms of 
enhancing the texture or the flavor or the mouthfeel um, to, to, to sort of get a meat analog. Uh, so yeah, at that time, when, 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 when I was thinking about doing something in the protein space in sort of 2018, this was all very much in the zeitgeist. Uh, and then looking back on, on that, that field of, of, of gas fermentation, where particularly when people were looking at CO2 as a feedstock, it was always um, viewed very much as a, a feedstock for, for platform chemicals, um, solvents, you know, like, like right. ethanol. Um, and one of the big problems when you, when you're trying to do that was there's, there's, there's quite a lot of biomass created. Um, so, so carbon flux or sort of efficiency of, of, of carbon and the energy that you use being pushed towards those microbes, making the end product, um, created quite some difficulties to, to, to get a, a decent sort of business case with technologies. Um, but of course, biomass tends to, tends to have at least some protein in it. Um, and I had, I was had, having a conversation with a couple of former colleagues that I did my PhD with over a beer when I was back in the UK and saying, okay, well, in, instead of that being a problem, what if it's the, the solution? You know, what if we can um, push more and more carbon and energy into the biomass and then, then tweak that so that the biomass accumulates a lot of protein? You know, single cell protein isn't isn't a new concept. Um, people have been actually looking at this for for decades. Um, and in certain right. certain ways of producing single cell protein have you know been on on the market for for, for quite some time. Um, but no one had ever successfully done this at gas fermentation at, with using gas fermentation at scale. And so the question is, okay, why is that? Is it fundamentally that the technology doesn't work? Um, yeah. Is are there any breakthroughs that have happened in the last couple of decades that can then enable that? And then, of course, are the market conditions right um, on both sides of the value chain? And um, what we recognized then, what we felt very strongly then was that, you know, with the degree that industrial biotechnology has come on in the last couple of decades, you know, the increased understanding in process modeling and um, and a mass transfer of gases, you know, very technical stuff. But, you know, a lot of good, good, good progress had been made there. Uh, if you look at the feedstocks with the advent of sort of carbon capture storage, carbon capture utilization storage technologies, and, and, and a lot of high volume, high purity CO2 coming on stream because of decarbonization. Same story with, with hydrogen, which is our, probably our most important feedstock. We talk about recycling CO2, but we, we need hydrogen mm-hmm. in our process at quite quite large volumes as well. And so with... with and that's of, been one of the boom topics sort of yeah. in the last you know, five, to, five to 10 years. Exactly. So with, with green hydrogen coming there and then um you know i think particularly on on the offtake side of things with with the aquaculture industry growing um very rapidly over the last few decades there's you know a growing demand for for high quality protein ingredients with a uh, yeah i guess if you look at the incumbent um ingredients that can that can meet that demand um a real um strain on on, on supply you know whether that's due to um sort of yeah, fish meal is 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 a is a good example, a good case study there. It's, it's it's kind of the gold standard protein that's used in in aquaculture and farm fishing. Um, and if you look at the the dollar value of the market, it's grown quite a lot over the last couple of decades. But actually, you look at the volume, uh, so the avail the availability of that mm-hmm. fish meal that's that's been caught and, and processed, that hasn't grown. It's it's, it's stagnant. Right. There there are obviously for good reason there are quotas around the amount of fish that people can catch. Um, and so that's struggling to to meet demand. And then then you're looking at the plant-based proteins, not great for some applications uh, in aquaculture. Uh, it is possible to to sort of 
uh, improve the specification of those through processing technologies, uh, which again are, are quite energy intensive. Um, and either way, you know, you're acquiring new arable land to bring new volumes of protein to the market. So, um, you know, if you're able to divorce that supply problem um, from the the demand opportunity, i.e., use different feedstocks like CO2 and hydrogen that are readily available or will be readily available. You know, that sounded like the foundations for a very, very strong um, business case. And so we went away, um, did some calculations on the back of an envelope, um, sort of enrolled in an incubator accelerator program, um, BioCity in, in, in Nottingham. Mm -hmm. they're, they're across the UK now. Um, and yeah, we, we basically spent a couple of years um, yeah, maybe 12 months or so working initially kind of weekends, evenings to try and assess, right. assess whether this was a goer. I think after about six months, I, I, I quit my job to, to work on it full time. Um, mm. And yeah, didn't really didn't look back. Um, managed to, to get a, a small grant from the UK government, uh, from Innovate UK to the tune of around, I think it was two, three hundred thousand pounds, something like that. Right. Secured some, some good uh, initial investment from... Yeah, family and friends, and and then some angel investors, and then I guess more recently, a couple of years ago, a, a Series A, um, and yeah, so so far I've raised around twenty million um, euros in in through a combination of investment and grants, and I've been using that really to fuel the the scale up of the technology. Right, because sort of from idea to yeah, actually showing that it works and rolling it out. Yeah, yeah, and I think. It's um it's been a steep learning learning curve in, in many ways you know um it, there's a lot of firsts when it comes to mm -hmm. to deep branch you know sort of first time founders um mm -hmm. first of its kind technology um, I mean thankfully we're, we're we're part of a cohort of um of other uh, companies that are that are looking to develop this um which is obviously good uh, validation that that we're in the right space um but no one's doing this at commercial scale right so a lot of the issues that you're having to overcome you're doing so for the first time uh, and so yeah you have to be have to be resilient um, and, and you have to be able to to learn quickly and um and not to get too hung up on the mistakes that you make as well along the way yeah i would love to dive into that in just a minute before we go there sort of maybe in i mean i think we touched upon it but so in in my words basically you take hydrogen and CO2, then you have microbes and they turn it into a single cell protein, right? This is sort of the fundamentals of the technology. Yeah. Um, so the fundamentals of the technology are that, um, I mean, you you require to make protein. Protein um, is, is made of amino acids. Um, and I guess on an even more basic molecular level, you essentially need a source of carbon, um, mm -hmm. a source of hydrogen and energy, right. Um, in our case, a little bit of oxygen um, and some some minerals, and, and that's really about about it. Um, so, broadly speaking, we have three gases that we use: CO2, hydrogen, oxygen. Um, we then have a, a nitrogen source that we we dissolve in in some water, um, and uh, then a few mineral salts that that we also dissolve in there. So, um, you can think of that as being sort of an electrolyte solution. Uh, through which those gases are, are bubbled. Um, and then within there, we introduce a, um, a microbe. So I guess 
think about just going to the supermarket and buying a sachet of yeast um, and introducing that to a mixture of water and, and, and flour. Um, and that's essentially the same thing that, that's happening there. And of course, when when that yeast is uh, as a microbe, when that yeast is growing, you can see it. Um, you can see it frothing up and, and, and creating bubbles in that case it's, it's creating co2 slightly different in our process but in, in terms of what's going on yeah the, the microbes are there they're thriving they're growing they're multiplying um when they do so um you know the the cells accumulate a lot of protein the cells then multiply so there are more and more cells what we end up with is a uh, a broth so a liquid that that looks uh, quite a lot like milk really in terms of its consistency and then using similar technologies that, that have been around for a few decades um, to, to make powdered milk we're then able to remove the, the liquid content from that broth and you're left with a, a dry powdered product which is what we call proton which has um, approximately 70 percent protein content um, so yeah, this this would be regarded as a, a protein concentrate would be sort of the the, the product category for it um which can then be used as a uh, as, as a high protein ingredient for uh, applications primarily our, our main focus is in animal feed specifically aqua feed so farmed fish right um but you know you, you find quite a broad set of applications in food in feed and uh in 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 some 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 other more weird and wonderful uh, areas of of uh protein requirement you know, cosmetics and, and such like okay great yeah i was going to sort of uh, go to so proton is um and i think then the first application you just said that is the the animal feed space and especially uh, fish farming yeah that's, that's correct and, and and the reason for that is that um farm fish so talking here primarily about salmon um mm. tend to be carnivores salmon right. are carnivores likewise trout um Barramundi, sea bass, sea bream, you know, these, these kinds of uh, fish that, that they all uh, evolved in the wild to, to eat, eat other fish. Um, and that means they have an extremely high protein requirement, um, one that, like I said, is conventionally met by fish meal. Um, you know, fish meal is made from fish. So from a nutritional basis, it, it, it fits that bill extremely well. Um, now, if you want to replace um, fish meal, you really have to uh, sort of hit those nutritional benchmarks and, and soy protein, um, you know, so soybean meal uh, will have probably 40, 45% protein content. Um, That's and, a quite a different, yeah, quite a difference compared to. Exactly. Protein. So, um, and, you know, similar kind of levels that you're talking about for a lot of other legumes and, and, and sort right. of plant, plant-based proteins. So usually what you're talking about there is some, some, for, some, some form of purification step whereby you're sort of up concentrating uh, the amount of protein there. Um, which And you still have the land challenge if you're talking about soy, for yeah, example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now you, this, this process of, of sort of, concentrating up the proteins um, is, is done as a primary processing step in soy. Uh, you know, you actually get a, a similar product coming off the back of things like um, uh, starch production from, from wheat and from corn. Um, you know, when, when you, when you pull the carbohydrates out of those, those, uh, those grains, um, you, you're left with um, corn gluten or, or wheat gluten, gluten being the, the protein um, component, um, which then also have applications in these kinds of things. Um, but what you tend to find there is that on a nutritional level, they're not as high quality as um, as fish meal. They lack uh, a lot of the essential amino acids. 
and so that was a key part of our development work um sort of selecting uh, naturally occurring microbial strains and then through uh through methods in, in the lab screening uh whether they they could meet the nutritional demands and actually found that um we were able to to develop a strain uh through natural methods that was naturally high in um in in those real really important essential amino acids so it's a complete protein source it's got all the amino acids that are required um and obviously that that says a lot about product quality and with greater quality you obviously you can you can command a greater price which is is, is very important um but it's it's a, a real necessity when it comes to to animal nutrition and and that can be met by by sort of uh blending right so you can you can bring in um purified amino acids um, as as additives to, to bring uh, the primary protein source up to spec. You can combine different protein sources that are maybe rich in, in one but deficient in another amino acid. Um, but with ours, really, uh, because it's a lot easier to, to tweak the, the, the protein content and the amino acid profile of microbes, you can really deliver sort of a bespoke um, dry ingredient that, that that means that there's not so much requirement on the other end for you know lots of inventory lots of different lines um, for, for different ingredients and additives rather you can sort of have uh, a, a one-stop shop for for, for right. your protein requirements that's that's what we're, what we're going for and well just a few minutes back you mentioned that uh, it's a number of first uh, first-time founders uh, first-of-a-kind technology so maybe you can sort of give a bit of background on where you are um on your scaling up journey because i read recently about this uh, mobile pilot unit i think it was one of the the key steps in sort of uh, bringing the tech to market yeah yeah well um i think it's important to sort of set this in the context of of, of what our scale up journey looks like and, and what our technical challenges yeah. are really to to get to market i mean i've, I've described sort of um, particularly on the offtake side of things um what our application and market development um, journey is, is is looking like we've made some really good partners there. Um, we work with Biomar, who are a big um, Danish uh, aquafeed company. You know, one of the one of the biggest in in the world. Um, but and it's, it's very clear that the market demand is there. Um, but of course, that then means that the challenge is is, is meeting that demand um, through through scaling up the technology and enabling it to meet its potential. So uh, obviously, there's, there's there's quite a lot um in in the trade press at the moment around fermentation technologies you know these industrial fermentation technologies have been around for for 100 years or or, or slightly more um when, when you're looking beyond just um sort of making lager at large scale you know sort of really looking at larger scale industrial fermentation processes making things like antibiotics uh other forms of pharmaceuticals uh pigments vitamins you know these kinds of things yeah. but broadly speaking at least on the upstream uh, side of the process um which means that the fermentation and where the, the tanks in which the, the fermentation process is, is is happening these processes generally look the same or, or or at least similar um you're able to use um when you're scaling you're able to use sort of general design principles that, that haven't changed in a long period of time that of course means that um when you're doing a conventional fermentation process there is there are good good options to go for a you know contract manufacturing uh, option um right because it's established components and yeah, yeah exactly so, so you can do some some, some tile manufacturing and yeah <clears throat> depending on the product 
you will have to potentially do some more innovation on the downstream side of things so the purification processes um but again that that tends to be kind of more um combining existing unit operations and if you work with a good um you know contract manufacturer or um mm -hmm sort of uh, you know party that, that can that can do that on a contract basis for you they, they should have um at the very least the the, the capabilities uh, if not also the equipment to, to be able to do that so i think those barriers have been broken down in a very good way um over the last particularly over the last sort of 20 years or so um which has meant that the, there's been quite a lot of innovation um in the you know maybe thinking of things like um precision fermentation uh, whereby you can genetically modify microbes to create a, a, a pure protein interest like an egg white um, or uh, sort of the proteins that you find in milk it means that you know that can be done very quickly uh, and without um, much investment in in, in capex at least at, at pilot scale in order to get that initial validation now unfortunately that's not true for our form of fermentation um, the reason for that is because we have to consider the the, the transfer of, of the gases that we use into the liquid um, of course getting um, the microbes have to grow suspended in 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 the liquid and therefore that the gases have to get into the liquid and you know from sparkling water or or, or lager or, or whatever your um, sort of fizzy drink of choice is you know, getting CO2 into in, into into water uh, isn't isn't a huge technical challenge, um, but we also require hydrogen and oxygen. Um, they are a little bit trickier to to dissolve, and also if you don't carefully monitor um, how you're introducing those gases, um, there is a significant risk of of an explosive event occurring. You know, the Hindenburg disaster is a really good yep. example of of what happens if you don't control that well. Uh, and yeah, so essentially what, what you're doing there is when you're looking to scale a technology like ours, you're having to, to combine two completely separate fields of engineering. So you have sort of the um, sterility and the process control um, that you would find in a conventional fermentation process that could be, you know, sort of a, a very clean uh, pharmaceutical environment or maybe a, a, a dirtier industrial process um, whereby there's not so much um, requirement on the purity side of things to to look into the feedstocks like a, a biofuel thing you know, that's kind of the spectrum that you're looking at there but yeah, broadly speaking same same engineering principles so that's one end of the spectrum or, or sorry that's one field of engineering then the second field of engineering is uh, is is more commonly seen in things like uh, industrial chemistry you, you know so petrochemistry um maybe oil and gas whereby you're having to to consider getting your facility built with equipment that is compliant with the regulatory standards around um, use of these potentially explosive gas mixtures. Uh, and yeah, that's expensive. It, it takes a lot of time. It, take, it, it Obviously the components are, are a little bit more expensive as well at pilot scale. Um, and because it's new, it's not something that you can just readily available, something that is just readily available for, for good reason. Um, so it's probably again sort of a first of its kind i would assume yeah absolutely and and that means that whereas a lot of other um let's say biotech companies in a, in a similar development phase as, as us have have the luxury of being able to go to to a toll manufacturer and saying you know here's my process run it in your plant right. we're having to build the process and build the plan and build the team um and secure all the capital capital to to, to fund that 
um, and and so you know the, there's a lot a lot of plates that you need to keep spinning, which is which is fun, right? It's 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 a really interesting challenge, um, but it's it's also very ambitious. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that that's a really helpful background, sort of all the different areas that you need to tackle, sort of at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and sort of, can you tell us a bit more then on the MPU? Sort of what's the what's the deal with the mobile? pilot unit there and where are you in the scaling up yeah so, so so how far have you basically come yeah so um, we've taken sort of a twin track approach to scale up so i spoke a little bit around sort of the the market and application development work mm -hmm. that we've been doing on on the product side of things but of course um we are sort of creating a new value chain certainly if you look at the other uh, other ingredients that go into into animal feed then they're not having anywhere close to the same value chain as us we we require like i said co2 hydrogen oxygen they're our primary feedstocks um and yeah these these feedstocks need to be validated we need to understand where we can get the um the necessary volumes and specifications of those gases um on the timeline that fits with our scale-up journey and so the purpose of the mobile pilot unit the mpu is to do exactly that um As I, as I just described, it takes a lot of time, energy, effort in order to, to get a, um, any, any facility built. Uh, but what we would like to do and what we have done with the MPU is have a mobile version of the technology that doesn't require any sort of site development work or any significant okay. site development work, whereby we can take it on site where with um, potential sources of CO2 or hydrogen or the two gases primarily that we look at and validate that that using those sources um, that we can we can generate sort of clean sustainable protein um, and that there are no issues with um, sort of the product quality or with the sort of the efficiency of the process you know owed to the unique nature of, of those gases that we were looking to source you know maybe it's got a high um uh you know water vapor content in it which means there's a lot of condensation that condensation maybe clogs up um some some of the equipment that we're using uh, as an example um which of course you know these kind of problems when you when you go out and test it in the real world you don't want to be um having a project that's kind of like 100 million euros total installed cost And then figuring out there's a fundamental feedstock issue, yeah. you'd much rather figure yeah. that out. Right. Um, at a much smaller scale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you know, then, then obviously there's a lot of scope there for IP as well. Um, so you, you know, these mm -hmm. these hurdles that you have to overcome um, aren't always obvious. Uh, and yeah. then the, the non-obvious ones are obviously great um, great yeah. opportunities to fasten some strong IP. Um, so yeah, the, the mobile pilot unit it's it was never designed to produce large volumes of protein. Um, so it was meant to be small, agile, nimble. Um, we, we run a continuous process. So mm -hmm. we wanted to be able to sort of put it on site for a number of months, run right. the gases through it and, and get a sense over a longer period of time how, how that looks. Um, and so we've we now deployed that MPU in, in two separate locations. The first one was um, on site with Drax Power Group in, in Selby in, in Yorkshire mm -hmm. in, in England. Um, and there we were able to use CO2 that came from their biomass power station. So they have an old coal-fired power station that they've converted into uh, using biomass, so biomass pellets. They then burn those and um, they've been working on developing sort of a CCUS hub um, on the back of their power plant. So the, the primary strategy there is that um, 
most of the CO2 that, that, that is produced can be captured and stored permanently uh, in, in, in sort of a geological feature below the North Sea. Um, and therefore, in principle, you can use their power plant to create carbon negative energy, which in itself yep. is a very cool concept. Yep. Um, but, you know, if you've gone to all the effort to put the infrastructure there to, to purify the CO2, because it comes out of their process around, let's say, 10% um, CO2 concentration. And in order to store it, you need to, to bring that that concentration of CO2 up to sort of 99%. Um, so they worked with a company called Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, part of the Mitsubishi group, um, who've got the technology that can do this. So it can take flue gas, use as a solvent to then um, to turn that flue gas into into high purity co2 um and so so drax and, and mhi were working together for a, for a long time to to do i guess a similar thing to what we were doing with our pilot and then we basically went in downstream of, of those guys and used the used the, the raw gas coming out of drax but also the, the purified co2 coming from mhi and got some some really promising results there we were able to use um a small electrolyzer Within, our, within the MPU, we have a small electrolyzer, um, which is uh, supplied by a company called Anapta. Um, and mm-hmm. so that meant we can be very flexible in terms of you know, sourcing CO2 on site, but, but, but having our own hydrogen production capacity. Um, likewise, if we want to take the MPU to another site where there's a hydrogen source of interest, we can, right. we can bring our own CO2 in, in cylinder yeah. format. And so the, then the next deployment of the MPU was in uh, in the province of South Holland, um, so to not too far away from Rotterdam in, in the Netherlands. Um, and here they actually already have um, an existing CCU ecosystem. Uh, as as you probably know, horticulture is, is big in the Netherlands, so to yeah. using greenhouses to grow uh, fruits and vegetables and, um, and, and flowers. And conventionally what happens there is natural gas is burnt to have combined heat and power to you know, supply power to, to light the greenhouses, supply heat to, um, to to heat the greenhouses, but then also using the CO2 that's produced in the burning process to provide CO2 for the plants, um, which is probably quite an important reminder that our process isn't the only processes that uses CO2 to, to create mm. food, actually. Yeah, all plants yeah. use CO2 to create food. Yeah. Um, very much sort of the nature of yeah exactly <laughs> actually you know our um plants learned this trick from from the kinds of microbes that we use in our process um, right the, so they, going back a long long time ago yeah the, the the trick they learned was that they could they could create their own hydrogen through photosynthesis but that's a, that's a different story for a different day right. but um essentially what what the the greenhouse sector in the netherlands figured out is yeah we we can use renewable power instead of uh in, instead of natural gas for the for the heat and the and, and, and the lighting but that doesn't really solve the co2 problem uh, enhancing their um their atmosphere with co2 does a lot to improve the yields of of of, of whatever it is that they're growing um and so yeah they, i guess they took an industrial ecology approach and realized well the port of rotterdam one of europe's biggest industrial um, uh, sort of science, biggest industrial chemistry sites, produces a huge, huge volume of CO2. Some of it is is naturally very high purity, is in in terms of um, the kinds of processes that they have there. Rather than the ten percent CO2 that I described at Drax, they have some right. um, some gas streams that that are, that are very high in CO2. Like if you're making uh, hydrogen from natural gas, you're essentially splitting the natural gas into hydrogen and and, and, mm. and carbon, and the carbon makes CO2. And so they've they've um, the industrial gas company Linda 
have got a subsidiary called, called OCAP. And OCAP is uh, yeah a business that's been made just to supply these greenhouses with the CO2 from from the port. So connecting those those two different um, those, those two two different sectors of the economy and using the the, the industrial CO2 to put into the greenhouses, which is great. So we were discussing with 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 Linda with OCAP. You know that um, with the port of Rotterdam, of course, having a lot of um, uh, sort of discussions about what the future of the industry looks like, looking to grow a green hydrogen cluster there, already having this CO2 pipeline, looking into carbon capture storage, uh, that it was interesting, really interesting for us to be able to validate our technology on their CO2. And they said, well, given all the permitting headaches um, that that would be uh, that would be causing some issues if you were to do this at the port. Um, particularly because, you know, uh, OCAP just sourced the CO2 from other companies. So we would have to sort of maybe talk to Shell, uh, one of the companies that sourced the, that they sourced the CO2 from. Um, as an example, they said, well, it'd be much more flexible if you just did it on site with one of the greenhouses. You can you can break into the, the CO2 pipeline, source the CO2 from there and, and, and put it into your process. So, so we did exactly that. Um, and and have got some some again some some good results um, for, from that. So so again showing that uh, on a technical level um, the the CO two can 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 be put through the system. Uh, but I think also it's equally valuable on on, on sort of a, a partnership commercial level, understanding you know who we can work with. Um, mm, the different value streams. Different yeah, is, is, the ecosystem. Is, is the ecosystem open to this? Um, you know, it's a good way to raise our profile and say to, to the other relevant stakeholders, you know, protein is a, is a viable um, is a viable outlet for, for, for pure CO2 um, on maybe on a policy level as well. Right. You know, the, the Dutch government at the moment are looking into what should their CCUS strategy look like? What should their green hydrogen strategy look like? And, you know, a lot of the things on the radar there are kind of uh, e-methanol or, or or sort of uh, e-fuels, so so using using yeah. hydrogen to, to make um, liquid fuels, um, combining it with CO two, uh, and and saying hey you know guys we're here too, uh, and uh, it's it's a nice diversification uh, play as well. So yeah, I think that the MPU has been been great, but what it doesn't do is produce sufficient volumes of protein for us to do a lot of application development work, which has been the main focus of. of of, of us getting our pilot facility online, which is also in the Netherlands, uh, in the south, so in the province of, of Limburg, close to Maastricht. Um, and so we we had an extensive site selection uh, project that we did a, a few years ago now. Given the unique nature of what we required, uh, as I described, a, a lot of the places that you would usually turn to and say, can you do some contract manufacturing, some contract fermentation for us, simply didn't have uh, the infrastructure, the utilities required to get this done. But then we started looking at it through a slightly different lens and saying, okay, well, if you have a continuous production process um, that requires hydrogen, oxygen, CO2, high pressure steam, power, you know, what, what really would that be categorized as? And it's, it's, it's far more industrial chemistry than it is, it is biotech. So then that led us down, down the path of looking at um, sort of these renewable chemistry hubs where, whereby they were looking to, to foster pilot and demonstration scale uh, technologies. Uh, there are a few of them in, in, in Europe um, and, and we really liked Brightlands, which is um, in, in the province of Limburg. They've got, um, they've got the full industrial scale chemistry hub which is called Camelot it's um 
I think it's Europe's biggest industrial chemistry site, um, certainly biggest multi-tenant one. Formerly, it was completely owned by DSM, who are one of our investors. They then since have divested quite a lot of those assets. So it's now got different assets owned by different companies, different businesses there. Um, but at, at the core of it, they have still all of the R&D infrastructure that the DSM had developed over the last half century or so. Um, and so that meant that you've got like a pipe rack infrastructure that has all of those gases that we need as utilities. Um, it means there are pilot halls, one of which we've we've leased, that are right next to that pipe rack. So we don't have we don't have the headache of, or we didn't have the headache of of trying to figure out how the how are we going to get hydrogen and CO two to site. Um, and then of course there's sort of a centrally administered um, sort of site um, back office team um, and, and sort of support uh, technical support team that can. You know, really help when it comes to permitting, um, to uh, sort of communication with broader stakeholders in the region. And on the engineering mm-hmm. side of things, you know, they've got sort of an engineering firm that was spun out of, of DSM that used to sort of be the site engineering for for right. when it was just DSM, but now they they provide that same service for for all the companies that are there. So really, we get all the benefits of mm-hmm. um, uh, of being a large corporate whilst being a startup. Um, which include things like you know, it sounds silly, but you know, having a, a really nice coffee shop and a canteen and a gym <laughs> and sort right. of uh, yeah, shared instead of working. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas I think some of the other a lot a lot of the other sites that we looked at, um, you would sort of have a well a porter cabin, you know, like a temporary office yeah. uh, in, in in a shipping container, yeah. um, which you know isn't necessarily. Uh, the best way to, to pull in young talent. I mean, in some not, ways, not necessarily. No, no. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, you know, that, that's that's the nature of, of operations, and and, and yeah. people that have worked in operations environments will know that that's the case. Uh, but of mm-hmm. course, we we aren't just in, in the operations phase. We're also doing R and D and commercial development and these kinds of things too. So it, it really it's a really nice ecosystem for us to be part of. Right. So the site sounds like a really good catch for you. I mean, we've already mentioned sort of the the number of firsts for you. Uh, so first time founder team, first time really bringing the technology to life. So you now have the side, but how far have you actually come in bringing it to life? What have been the challenges on the way? Yeah. So, I mean, we, like, like I previously described, we've managed to secure you know, quite a significant amount of funding. Um, so got the site, um, got the, the, the funding to, to build the pilot, um, and I guess if you were to rewind uh, what, what is now sort of two two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, so what that takes back to um, sort of back end of, of 2020, um, which, of course, was an extremely fun time uh, for, for everyone, right? We, we recognized that uh, we had the right location and uh, we, we, we sized the project accordingly. Um, I guess for people unfamiliar with these kinds of projects, um, if you're looking to build a large commercial facility, usually what you would look to do is go and have a, a, an, an EPC contract. So here you'd go and work with... And EPC stands for? Yeah, so here, here you you would have a... It's, it's an engineering procurement and, and construction right. um, contract. And, and basically... Right. Uh, there, there are a number of large engineering firms or large EPCs that that, that offer this service, um, and essentially, you know, you, you you say, well, here are the specifications of the facility that we would like to build. Um, 
please go away and do all the engineering. Um, so do do the necessary design work and and and, and take a, a concept uh, and, and which basically says, yeah, we want this volume of output. This is roughly what the footprint looks like. Here is the, the the process flow. So like you know we want um, input A and B to go into this vessel, and then you want this vessel to do that. You you define all the specifications. But then they'll take it away and do what's called detailed engineering design, right? They'll, uh, and, and prior to that, doing front-end engineering design. So, so this is sort of getting to a point whereby they've got every single nut and bolt defined that, 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 that they need. Then that same company does all the procurement, all, all the purchasing of the, the necessary parts um, and the construction of it. And, and what So basically like the full package. Is, 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 is a full package, exactly. Hmm. Um, and that's great if you have a mature technology. Um, and if, if you don't, it, it, it can have some, some downsides or, or not even be possible. Because um, I guess in, in instances like that, uh, that I just described, what you want to have is, is certainty in, in the way that the process is, is going to operate. And if you have a number of scope changes um, in, in, a, in a project like that, um, it's not necessarily uh, the, the best contracting structure. Right, because I guess there's no blueprint to follow, which I guess often is the case for the for the EPCs that they can sort of have done those projects in the past, thus they're able to replicate what they've learned and, well, build from that. Yeah, and they can bring in off-the-shelf technology. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it really depends on the kind of technology that you're doing. If it's sort of the first, in, first of its kind technology where you're bolting together known um, processes, um, known unit operations that's that's fine um but it, there's real novelty to it and like you said you've got like a maybe a crude blueprint of what you want to build um but but that's subject to change um it's not the best and i think you know to be frank as well um you know what what usually you're talking about with a with an epc uh is you know, hundred hundreds of millions of euros um total installed cost whereas a pilot scale project is uh yeah significantly smaller than that thankfully um so you know you're only talking uh, a, f a few million euros and, and so with that totally. what, yeah what <laughs> yeah i mean it's quite interesting right you, you, you speak to a larger engineering firm about yeah. like the 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 sort of pipe work that you need for your facilities and they say oh that's just an instrumentation you know that's the kind of piping that they'd expect to have hooked yeah. up to uh you know like a pressure valve um mm -hmm. and and for you this is actually what's moving all your your things around so it, it's sort of an order of magnitude smaller than than, than what a large large engineering firms would look to do um so what we opted for there was sort of a similar arrangement but sort of like a turnkey solution with uh, a bioreactor manufacturer so um for sort of like lab scale up to pilot scale maybe demonstration scale you can go out to uh, to vendors that specialize in in making bioreactors um so these will be brands for anyone that's ever worked in a um in, in, in a biotech research lab will be familiar with, you know, they, they make these smaller, maybe one, five, 10 liter scale reactors that you'd have um, at lab scale, all the way up to, um, you know, a few cubic meters um, at sort of pilot demonstration scale. Uh, they have their own control systems and, uh, you know, so, so in theory, yeah, a good, good option. Like I said, the kind of technology that we, require is not off the shelf so it's not like we can say we'll, we'll have one of your best gas fermentation bioreactors please instead it's it's sort of a co-development project and so 
um, we 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 also have, of course, not got a huge depth of of all the necessary engineering disciplines that we would require to, to fill in the blanks there. You know, you're talking about um, a lot of safety engineering when when you look at our our, our requirements there. It's a high pressure environment, potentially explosive gas mixtures. Um, you know, obviously it's uh, got to meet various other compliance um, that, that's there in the Netherlands and in the EU. And, and so what what you then use is a, an external sort of process engineering firm. This is also quite commonplace. You know, you have sort of the technicians, that, like the scientists, I mean, um, can can be our sort of subject matter experts and then working with a with a process engineering firm to say, hey, please go and go and turn this sort of uh, scientific process that we've developed in the lab into a in, into a robust um, concept feasibility um, study, uh, the outcome of which you can then present to a to a vendor and say, go in and, and build it to, to this specification. And again, a bit like we described with the um, EPCs, fill in the blanks. Mm. Um, you know, what, what we want is a turnkey solution that does what we've just described. Um, we don't necessarily care about um, sort of the, the finer details about how it gets done as long as it's functional, compliant and safe. Right. Um, now, uh, I guess every every journey has its uh, have, has its ups and its downs, and mm-hmm. I think what we what we learned from there is that um, you need to be a lot more rigorous when I think particularly when there's compliance and, and safety issues involved there to make sure that you, that you're working with vendors that can actually sort of deliver on that. So um, usually these projects from uh, start to finish would take maybe two years. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and for us, we've incurred, you know, at least 12 months of, of, of delay on this um, because essentially we, we were working with a vendor that, that over-promised and, and right. under-delivered. And especially on the elements that you don't want to compromise, right? I mean, you never want to compromise, but I guess sort of in the startup environments, it is part of the deal that sometimes you sort of want maybe opt for the 80% solution because it is the thing that gets you to market faster and so on. But for example, on safety, you can't. And regulations don't let you. So sort of this is important that you comply there. And thus, I guess, from what you've described, this is where then delays occur. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, the, the functionality of the system, as you described there, um, yeah, there's, there's room for a little bit of flex, right? If you, if you wanted a name nameplate capacity of, you know, let's say 500 kilos a, a month and it, it, it turns out that it was only 400 or yeah. that you'd have to, I think, quadruple it in size if you wanted to have that. But but in, instead, you could you could opt for something that's um, sort of a, a reasonable footprint and, and gets you everything you want. And then that's that's where the compromise comes in. But um, yeah, there's there's sort of a, a, a necessary hurdle that you have to overcome, which is that, that compliance and, and safety. And of course, Compliance like in, informs safety, um, with the sort of the, the rigorous EU regulations that, that we have to follow, um, and what we ended up being in a situation whereby um, we had conducted an audit based on what had been installed, and the outcome of that audit showed uh, a lack of compliance in, in a lot of key areas. So we were never going to move into a phase of commissioning whereby um, whereby we could be handling. Uh, potentially explosive gas mixtures um, without having verified the compliance. Uh, but when you have a situation whereby a vendor is refusing to accept that what they've delivered is not compliant, um, that's when, as a director of a company, 
you've got to push the big red button and say, okay, no more. We can't move ahead if you aren't able to, um, if you aren't able to sort of understand the necessary rigor that's required mm -hmm. to, to meet these meet and live these up to the standards, basically. Yeah, these standards are there for a reason. You can't you, you can't can't get around them. Um, if if it's not compliant, then it's not getting turned on. Um, and I think that was uh, yeah that, that that was a pretty dark time for us as a, as, a, as a company, right? We uh, I can imagine. Yeah. We we essentially built um, built a team that was ready to receive a, a, a functional unit, obviously functional, compliant, and safe. Um, but instead, we're having to sort of troubleshoot all three areas, which is where you need sort of a, a lot of depth of not just process engineering, but mechanical, electrical mm -hmm. engineering. Um, and yeah, again, if, if we were a normal biotech company, we wouldn't even have to be build this, building this yep. ourselves. And it turned into a situation where we were literally having to build it ourselves. So we had to go a little bit back to the drawing board. Luckily, um, we had sort of the backbone of, of a very good system in terms of like the the vessels that we are using that we are using um, had been um, constructed by a, a very reputable third party. Um, they were no notified body approved, so you know the regulatory approval for these vessels was there. And really, it's just an engineering problem around ensuring that all the lines that connect these vessels to move liquids and gases mm -hmm. from from A to B um, were constructed, and 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 the the components required, you know, so the pumps, the valves, the mm -hmm. the, um, the instrumentation um, were all of the necessary specification um, required to, to to handle it safely. I guess maybe to use an analogy, it's a bit like um, sort of making sure that you've got uh, waterproof electronics uh in, in in a way that if you were to have a you know a, mod, a modern iphone uh, you can chuck it into a swimming pool and not worry that it, it, it's not going to work because it's been built in such a way that and, and, and been built using components that are verified or assembled in such a way that's been verified to be safe down to whatever 10 meters depth um it's the same kind of thing when, when you're talking about industrial instrumentation mm. you know you, things are just built in, in, in a way whereby um, there's uh, in the manufacturing process, they go through their own compliance procedures and testing procedures to make sure that yes, they are indeed safe to use with potentially mm. explosive gas mixtures, um, whatever the, the, the sort of necessary compliance that yeah. needs to be met there is. And then it's just a case of um, sort of going through the blueprints of what we know the, the plant needs to look like, um, going back to, to the plant and, and seeing um, and basically building out a set of blueprints as built because right. the uh, the blueprints that we were provided by the vendor didn't match actual reality. So we had to go back mm -hmm. and redefine, okay, what are we actually working with? And then build out a, a stepwise plan to go from right. um, what was actually sort of there um, to what needs to be there, mm -hmm. which involves tearing stuff out, putting stuff in, right. um, building a new control system. Uh, so, um, yeah, really, uh, a lot of um, a lot, a lot of work. Uh, but, but and I guess a lot of work that you didn't really anticipate, because I guess that's exactly sort of where this this discussion started around sort of the pilot plan is. You went somewhere for you know to get a turnkey solution, and then ultimately you end up very much doing it yourself. Yeah, and I think the the other thing there is that um, I guess the real frustration from my side particularly is where we were let down um it's it's not a reflection of the 
the technology itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it, yeah. it's not that um, there was some unforeseen technical hurdle that is inherent with yeah. with the technology that we're building. It was just having you know piping that's the wrong diameter or right. um, valves that are the wrong specification. Um, a control so very much sort of the nitty gritty operational company. stuff. Yeah, um, stuff that you would look at a look at a bioreactor manufacturer yeah. and say, well, yeah, that they they do this uh, day in yeah. day out and it should work. And of course, I think with us there is an additional layer of complexity that's been baked on of a, mm-hmm. to to a classic bioreactor, and and simply we had a, a vendor that, that that bit off more than they can chew. Um, but the good news is that yeah, like I said, those those issues aren't hard to overcome. It takes time, yeah. it takes resources. Um, but it's just basic engineering um, and a, a lot of it, uh, but but it is just basic engineering. So um, then we had to go out and make sure that we had the right people to, to come in and, mm-hmm. uh, and and fulfill those those functions as, as required. I think the good news is that, and if you look at this sort of as, a, as an opportunity for us to learn, we've actually got a lot more intimate knowledge about how the technology works, about yeah. the necessary, um, I think the necessary control system philosophy that's required you know who are using someone else's control system um without having to build out our own one um from scratch um we we wouldn't necessarily have built out the level of ip that we have um, Mm -hmm. on this combination of sort of safety and process control you know with our process that is quite complex and 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 therefore having our own ip around that is a is an added benefit um as we're looking to scale the technology up yep. we'll be we'll be having a, a demonstration scale facility and the location for that we're um we're currently sort of looking to lock down so we'll be making an announcement um probably at some some point over the course of this year um so we're already in a lot stronger position for that because um when, once you go another order of magnitude higher the level of information that you need to provide about how your system works is of course greater and here you're no longer working with um sort of off the shelf um control systems for example but instead you'll be defining your own control system philosophy and having gone through that already ourselves for the pilot we, we're in a lot stronger position to do do so for the demonstration scale facility mm. likewise having our um having our operators and our ops team knowing you know the, the necessary compliance working really hands-on with the system means that from a maintenance perspective we, we know it intimately and it also means that um you know, we can be a lot more diligent with our with our vendor selection um, for 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 the next time. So, um, I think we're in a much stronger place than we would have been uh, had the had the system been delivered as we anticipated, albeit we would have been you know a year earlier. So, and these are the kind of setbacks that that a lot of startups in, in, encounter. Mm. And I think there's a there's an old saying in in sort of risk management with these kind of projects that is, is, is always what you don't have on your risk register that comes and screws you over. Um, and that's exactly what's happened with ours. Yeah. I mean, instead of from what I hear is um, you've taken uh, sort of two steps at a time where you didn't really want to take them, which is, you know, ultimately probably in the long run, it's going to be great, which allows you, you know, you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of um, IP and so on that, will be really helpful as you scale the company and as you scale the technology. And at the same time, obviously, you really wanted to move ahead. So sort of it came at a time where it wasn't perfect, but hopefully in the long run, this will really pay off for you. Yeah, precisely. So, you know, we, we, we've kind of had to had to do, do our 
undergraduate and our master's degree yeah. <laughs> all at once. Well, it feels like almost like you did your PhD while you sort of were writing your bachelor thesis. Um, sort of, you know, this is you were throwing into the cold water uh, learning to swim while you know you're really not uh, familiar with the water yet. And sort of the obviously you knew all the tech, but you weren't ready to build it all by yourself, and then you had to. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And then I think sort of on an organizational level, there's there's a lot of key learnings there, which are, uh, you know, I think having the the right people on the right seats in the bus is, of course, you know, what 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 the name of the game is when when you're looking to build um, a startup that 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 looks to be successful. However, um, I think a, there's there's a very steep learning curve when you when you're in a project like this for the first time and you're trying to even just figure out what those seats on the bus even are. Right. Um, because without or or where does where does the bus even leave? Yeah, yeah. Um mm. and, and that's where I think having sort of the strong set of uh people in our network, either formally like, you know, our, our, our investors, we've got a, a couple of very good, knowledgeable, um strategic and, and and financial investors in in uh, a dsm venturing dsm obviously big um sort of dutch well now dutch dutch swiss um headquartered company um that, that do a lot of biotechnology so so no process biotech very well likewise nova holdings who are the holding company behind a lot of biotech companies uh, you know, like novazymes nova nordisk christian hansen these these kind of companies so there's a lot of sort of institutional knowledge there that we could tap into um, I mean, just basic things like project management. You know, how, how should we how should we set this up for success? Um, what kind of profiles of people should we be looking for? You know, kind of pulling in those important first few people onto the project when we had to restructure it in order for them to be able to easily define who else is required, rather yeah. than you know trying to build a whole team without having the necessary knowledge there about who should be in that team. Hmm. And. I mean, to all other founders of clean tech companies who listen to this podcast and sort of think about scaling up their technology, is there what sort of advice would you give them for in a similar situation, sort of trying to scale up an unknown first-time technology? Um, how is there anything in hindsight that you where you would say, right, this step could have prevented this, or is there some sort of learning for you um, that you would be able to share? Yeah, I, I mean. I have a lot of learnings that that I've I've, I've yeah I can imagine <laughs> it sounds like a very steep learning curve yeah yeah but uh, no I think I think there were a few key ones right um, I think if if you're talking about a capital intensive business you know when mm. when you're looking to to put to put millions into into technology uh, I think making sure that that you follow. Um, the right process when it comes to establishing a project like that is is necessary. I think if you if you look back, you know we we, we put the project out to tender, um, looked at, at different vendors, uh, had actually previously worked with uh, the company that ultimately let us down, and I think the the key mistake there was the assumption that because working with them on a smaller scale was fine, um, would also work for the larger scale. It, it also worked for a larger scale. Mm. And also because they deployed sort of comparable sized um, reactors um, didn't mean that they'd of course done so with the, the complexity that, that that we required on on ours. Uh, so yeah, I think that sort of level of diligence and rigor that's required there is necessary. And and like I said 
about you know sort of making sure that you've got enough knowledge uh, in-house or enough knowledge that you can access within the organization to understand you know what it actually is that you're looking for it may well be that uh, it is necessary to sort of hire a third party in um to, to do that sort of yeah diligence um on, on on the potential vendors that you want to use so i guess that's that's a very key learning um i think the the, the second one would be um particularly when things aren't going to plan or when when the plan has changed quite significantly unfortunately you do sometimes have to have a very very hard look at your um, at your organizational structure mm-hmm. and say okay do we have the right people right. On, on board now we know that things have changed um and i think in that regard openness and transparency are extremely important you know generally speaking people aren't stupid particularly people with phds tend not to be stupid yeah although, they tend to be on the smarter side of the spectrum yeah exactly although my wife would tell you that that doesn't actually mean much and, and that i'm stupid in my own in my own <laughs> in many ways um but I, I guess what i'm saying there is that you know in in, in general um people can get a sense um within any organization that the times have changed and, and 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 realities are different to to what had previously been planned um and so i think just having an open dialogue there about that and saying okay well what does this mean about the team structure who do we need to get in um have we maybe jumped the gun on on, on, on getting um people in that we thought would be doing a job um which would yeah in in hindsight you know a good call on the assumption that things would have gone um to plan to schedule at least um but now you sort of got someone sat there sat there twiddling their thumbs um for, for you know a few months or in this case sort of over a year you know i think just just having an open dialogue with with those people and saying you know we, we need to make sure that the team structure can be modified to, to meet what actually are the the requirements um and i guess that's sort of the the tougher side of startups that the mm. people don't often see um mm. <clears throat> you know it's um it, it's obviously an industry based on uh, a lot of outward communication about how great everything's going um and often when when, when times are tough that that uh that that can be quite hard to square particularly inside the organization um and i think and on the outside as well because i think sort of it sets up the hurdle for I don't know, sort of the the hurdle to fail a lot higher, if, if, if you see what I mean, sort of if you're always just portraying the nice image of everything is going rosy and according to plan, well, yes, but that's sort of in the moment where things don't go according to plan, and to be honest, in our field where we're scaling novel technologies that have really an impact on, uh, on the planet and all of our lives, things won't always go according to plan. So sort of, I think I find it really refreshing that you're all sharing all of this because it allows all of us to be a bit more open and sort of adapt to this reality, which is the real reality and not just the perceived reality of stories that are being shared on social media or, you know, media outlets. So sort of there's this in between, which is the everyday life. And I think this is really helpful to have that perspective as well. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think, you know, what, one thing that I was chatting to one of my colleagues about this week, um, you know, now we're in a, a lot stronger place and uh, and it's it's looking like we'll be able to get the 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 plant finished uh, on track for, for our new schedule that, that we've defined. So uh, hopefully later this year we'll, we'll be able to have the facility live. It's sort of like we set out 
expecting to climb Kilimanjaro, but in fact we're we're climbing Everest. Um, hmm. And we kind of had to turn around, go back, <laughs> get the right equipment, and start to base again. camp. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's easy at that point to forget that you've come a lot further than you thought you had to go. You, you're not quite at the summit yet. Um, you've had quite a few false peaks where you think you've you think you're approaching the top, and it turns out that actually there's a lot further to go. And I think when you're very ambitious and driven, sometimes that can be a trap because you you you, you beat yourself up for, for not having mm. um, sort of achieved the end point um without having the perspective to realize what what you've achieved yeah and how far you've gone already exactly exactly and i think that that also can sort of permeate into the the, the sort of the, the confidence of, of of people in the organization as well right sure. particularly those in a, in a leadership position whereby sure. you know maybe you're using the the knowledge that you've gathered um over the course of of that project but then looking back critically at the decisions that you've made. And, and so I guess judging yesterday's decisions with today's knowledge and, and then saying, oh, that was a mistake. I mean, yeah, in, in retrospect, it, it, it wasn't a good call. Um, but you didn't knowingly make a series of bad calls. And actually yeah. the fact that um, the fact that we're still here and going strong means that we made a, a, a parallel series of very very good calls um, and yeah. you know, we made some great highs and early enough you know we, and it, we have the saying in german sort of it's always easier to make the right decisions retrospectively and that's exactly true right what if would you have known with everything that you know now well of course you would have made a different call but at the time that was i guess the best decision uh that you could make given the information that you had and sort of you made the decision diligently so that and at the same time it doesn't mean that you can't correct down the road which you also did so yeah yeah and and i think i think then often it's important to look back and say you know what given given the way that, that panned out um you know, i'm i'm pretty happy that we, we made the decision that we did yeah um or another uh, way of looking at it is that you could you could look back at it and say <clears throat> you know we, we've learned a lot of um of important general lessons and if, if you have those general lessons already under your belt and you go back and and you know like when we're doing the vendor selection um, in our instance, the degree to which they they sort of under delivered, I think mm. it would be it would be it would be strange to walk into um, sort of a, a discussion with a with a vendor, kind of with an assumption that they would they would be sort of so so over promising and under delivering. But actually, right. yeah, now, now you're going to say, well, that's that's why you've got to ask the hard questions. That's why you've got to got to look at these things extremely critically because mm. um, it's sort of confidence and, and 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 sort of goodwill only go so far um yeah. and and ultimately you just got to make sure that you got your back covered and um i think that's actually where i'm really happy that which is another good lesson that, that we've got an extremely good general counsel you know we, we had our contracts set up in in such a way that we were recruiting penalty fees for like late delivery um we had a lot of legal protection um on oh, that's really good in, in the event of a default um so yeah, we 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 were lucky that that was the case because otherwise, then yeah, you, you would have maybe been talking about having ongoing litigation, um, a whole bunch of uh, yeah other new stuff that you don't don't really want to be learning as a founder. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess that's a, a good justification to to get sort of key people in the organization um, at the right time, which is is different for different organizations, right? Like our our, sure. our general counsel hands uh, used to be 
general counsel at, at, at DSM Netherlands, you know, so so one of the one of the larger uh, operational units of, of DSM, um, and that when you when you say it, to some people sounds bizarre that sort of a, a company of 20, 25 people would, would, would already have a general counsel on the payroll. I mean, Hans brings a lot more to the organization than, than, than just being general counsel because he's got a lot of experience in, in strategy and uh, strategic marketing as well. Um, but actually, given the nature of the, the issues that we were having to, to address, it was it was actually really good to have uh, a GC there, and then then we got the additional benefits that I just described. So it's sort yeah. of uh, different horses for different courses, and um, yeah. yeah, if if you've got protracted legal battles, then um, then it's good to have a general counsel around. I can imagine now. Yeah. Super interesting to hear all the insights on this. After looking back, let's also look ahead. Sort of, you know, a few years from now, what's the impact that Proton and deep rent will have yeah i mean we're we're really looking forward to the next 12 months or so because it's going to give us so much more information um and insight into into where we can really push things with proton so as i described earlier you know proton is a um it's a, a very protein rich ingredient um you know pro protein concentrate is, is what what the market would call it um and it's got a lot of very interesting applications. We, we've already got good partnerships um, in place for, for assessing this in, in aquaculture and in poultry. I think we're particularly excited about um, getting this into salmon feed. Um, we, we've got a, a market launch facility that, that we're planning to, to have constructed um, over the course of the next three or four years. Um, so this is that demonstration scale facility that I described. Um, and the idea is that this will be able to validate um, prior to commercial scale, but at a at, at a reasonable scale, um, i.e., a, a scale that is is representative enough uh, that if it works at a demonstration scale, it, it will certainly work at commercial scale. There, we can demonstrate all the right um, uh, all, all the right combinations of technology that we would need at commercial scale work together. That the the fundamentals of the process in terms of the technical economics all stack up, um, and that it produces sufficient volumes to be able to do not just application development but real market development work um, so this would mean producing sufficient volumes of proton to um, you know go into a pilot launch with a with a feed producer whereby ultimately you would end up with um, you know a, a, a proton fed salmon on the supermarket shelf um, right. and and I think that's that's a really exciting prospect you know to, to be able to sort of walk into a supermarket and uh, and have a salmon fillet, for example, that's uh, been produced using our, our our product. I mean, we've done um, a life cycle assessment on on sort of use of um, yeah sustainable inputs to make protons. So this would be sort of using renewable energy to, to produce mm -hmm. the hydrogen that we need by the end of the decade. We're planning to have commercial scale facilities that will mean that um, yeah this can can have sort of um, yeah far-reaching um, ramifications whereby every consumer can, a, a large amount of consumers in, in Europe can, can make the choice to to have more sustainably produced uh, animal products. But at the same time as doing that, of course, we're we're really excited about um, new applications for um, for for our protein-rich products like Proton, um, which yeah could could mean exploring applications in the food space and and beyond. Um, 
but also you know using the background that, that a lot of us in the team have when it comes to synthetic biology uh, to really harness the potential that this technology has as a platform because um you know like i said most conventional fermentation uses sugar as a source of carbon and energy um and uh we've got a few interesting results um, at lab scale that show that we can make more than just uh just protein and so right. sort of bringing bringing those through the scale up pipeline would enable us to um potentially get things to market a lot quicker you know we've already built out lab scale which we have the mobile unit the pilot by that time the the demonstration scale facility our market launch facility you know in theory you can push things through that pipeline a lot quicker um and so yeah what i'm hoping for in the future you know my, my vision of deep branch um on say like a 15 20 year time frame would be that we would have multiple products spanning um across not just food but sort of non-food applications um, that would be you know, products that are probably conventionally already made from fermentation today, um, but that could be done so um, at, at the very least in a cost competitive manner, um, but by virtue of, of the feedstocks that we use also having a big edge when it comes to sustainability or yeah. food security. Um, so that's, yeah, that, that's kind of the vision that I see whereby we can have the the power that biotechnology has to produce a broad range of of products that's already a more sustainable way of producing things than, than oil and gas, but really take it to that next level um, and say, okay, well, we don't even need our land anymore. Yeah, that's super exciting. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing that that rollout of the deep branch platform over the next years. And sort of the then the final question, because I think this is also a good one, given the journey that you've described in, in the conversation today. I mean, ev looking at everything that has been thrown at you and sort of, you know, from you described the, the start of the company uh, over a beer in the UK and sort of, you know, scribbling the idea of what, what we could do to raising uh, multi-million uh, euros to scale up the tech and then to contract someone um, to bring that pilot facility to life ultimately ending up doing it yourself. So sort of this, a lot of things going on in a very short amount of time. What keeps you going and motivated to do so? I mean, obviously you just described the impact of the tech and I guess that's one answer in it to really wanting to see that change and bringing that exciting um, technology that you've seen a decade or so ago um, when you, when you first get into gas fermentation there, but still sort of what, what is it on a daily basis that yeah, keeps you motivated, keeps you rolling? Yeah. Um, I think my, my main motivation is, um, is really the team that we've built. Um, I, I really like the, the guys that, that I, I work with, um, you know, the whole organization is, is, is fantastic. Um, and I think, you know, in, in, in the, in the dark days when you know some of the events that, that i described when you're facing those um really that's a, a strong motivator which is you know i don't want to let these guys down um you know we've we've got people that have really bought into to, to the vision of, of what we're trying to build um in this company uh, and we we need to make sure that that, that energy that they've given um can can be sort of a, a long-term benefit to to the organisation, um, but then you know that's that's sort of a 
motivation that you have in in, in the darker periods but in, in normal circumstances and you know when, when when you're sort of having good days as well um you know just just seeing the smiles around of the people and um and then i guess that's the opportunity that you have to reflect on yeah we really are building something cool here not just because of um not just because of the transformative nature of the technology um but because of the the journey that, that we're going on um, and I think that change in perspective uh, is, is something that I've really benefited from, particularly in the last sort of 18 months or so, um, because I think it's easy to sort of get get too lost in, in that point on the horizon that you're building towards. Um, and, and like I described earlier, failing to recognise that, that you've already done a lot. And, and when you do take the opportunity to step back and, uh, and, and, and realise what you've achieved so far, um, that, that that provides a lot of satisfaction and and I think also a really necessary opportunity as a leader to recognize all the efforts that have gone in from from everyone that's worked um, in in the company um, yeah like I said unfortunately due to the nature of the problems that we that we saw um, we, we did have to have a bit of churn when it came to, to the team you know we had um, maybe right people in the wrong seats or um, sort of a requirement to, to get in, in different skills um, but you know everyone everyone joined the organization um, buying into sort of the vision of the founders and it's really nice to be in a position now where it's not just the founders that are driving that you know you've got a sort of broader set of people within the organization that are equally aligned when it comes to the strategy of what we're trying to achieve and really then happy to have I'm really happy to have them helping build the culture within the organization and this idea that um you know when you're a smaller team of say 20 people and uh, you know nothing is defined for, for for what that team looks like in the future of course there's going to be more people joining it um, but that's an opportunity to, to to really like lay your cultural foundations and um and build build the workspace that you want to work in mm. you know that's um that, that and that's that's something that i think often i when I, when I speak to people in the organization, particularly that come from a larger corporate background, that's a real motivating factor that they have. You know, a lot of these people are stepping out of organizations that have been around mm. for you know, maybe a hundred plus years. And the degree that which you can influence change within within your workspaces is really quite limited there. Of course, culture evolves, but but here where we're working, it evolves very quickly. Um, so it's a fantastic opportunity to to sort of really come in and make a change not just in terms of yeah the environment if you if you're looking at that as a as a factor not just in terms of the technology in terms of the disruptive potential disruptive potential of the organization but yeah really like your own working really building the company that you would want to work for and that you would want to see yeah exactly and i think um you know having that ownership um, across across the company is really essential mm. uh, of course it needs to be sort of like the tone for that needs to be set at the top um but you want to make sure that you're stocking your organization full of people that that really see that as, as something they can grab and run with um you know we've got we've got people in in roles that are sort of wearing hats that they've never worn before in the previous yeah. companies they've been working for because yeah there's only so many people that we can that we can have on the payroll at one time and, and there are more jobs than people um yeah. and, and so that's, that's that's also i think really really cool to be able to see that 
you know people see beyond just the excitement of the technology uh, and, and and have excitement about just turning up and working somewhere 40 hours a week and uh, be, be able to influence that i think that's a wonderful final thought that um we discussed thank you so much for your time and all the great insights in to how to scale basically a technology from the thought around the beer then to into uh, hopefully very much a very very soon a pilot in the netherlands and then obviously onwards and upwards yeah thanks well, it was a pleasure being here jan and uh, yeah i'm I'm certainly looking forward to, to hearing more about the, the founder adventures on, on the podcast. Thank you so much, Pete. Speak soon. Cool. Cheers, Jan. Yeah.